Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 13. Last week we covered about 23 verses. This week we're covering about three or four. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. <laughs> this is war. And if you're not prepared for battle, you will find things exceptionally difficult. In Ephesians thus far, previously in Ephesus, the first three chapters, we are sitting in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, we sit and we watch what God has done in Christ. Listen to verses 19 and following in chapter 1. Talks about God's power and says that, his power is like, that the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And then in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. So in the first three chapters, we are sitting. Say sit. 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 All right. We are sitting in chapters 1 to 3. We are just watching what God has done and then we are taking our seats. He's inviting us to sit with Christ in the same place that Christ is sitting. So that's the first three chapters. From chapter 4, at the start of chapter 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to walk worthy. And in chapter 4, Chapter 5, in the first half of chapter 6, we are walking. This is how we live. Now, what you must understand is that we first of all sit before we walk. We sit and we watch what God has done in Jesus and we take our seat with him. The lifestyle comes afterwards as an outworking of that. The problem in a lot of religious mindsets is that we have to please God before we can sit with Christ. It's the wrong way around. Paul says, first of all, let me give you three chapters of what it means to sit with Jesus in what he has done. And then let's talk about the life that will flow out of that. Get rid of the idea that we have to achieve some sort of standard before we can sit with Christ. We can sit with Christ because of what God has done in Christ. And then the lifestyle flows out of it. So we are sitting, we are walking in chapters 4, 5 and the first half of chapter 6. And now having realized where we sit and how to walk, we are called to stand. Sit, 
walk stand. John Stott says we are now jolted after seeing what God has done, after seeing this beautiful lifestyle of walking that out in our relationships, in church, in family, in whatever, in our character. After all of that, we're now jolted with a reminder of the opposition that we face. Quite a lot of Bible commentators think that these verses is why Paul wrote the letter. This was the point he was trying to make. Everything else building up to this call to stand against opposition. He does not tell us where the devil came from. We know that he was an angel who in his pride rebelled against God and was cast down. We know that demons went with him. They were angels who left God's presence and glory and joined with the Satan as he's known in Job 1. We know from Ephesians that he has access to the heavenly realms where God is, where Christ is seated, where we also have access in the spirit. He has access there to this place called the heavenly realms. But Paul's purpose here is not to satisfy our curiosity about who the devil is or where he came from, but to warn us of the force that is against us and to teach us how to overcome that force. You see, Satan opposes everything that God does. We've read in Ephesians chapter 2 about how God wants to make one new people. Listen to Ephesians 2.15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He wants to take people who are separated and scattered and isolated and bring them together into one people. So Satan straight away wants to divide. Divide, divide, divide. So little seeds of discord, discontent, division. That's what he does because he's opposing what God has done. We read also in Ephesians 2.14 about how Jesus has broken down the walls between people. Satan wants to put them up again. We read in Ephesians 3 verse 10, a lovely, lovely verse where, where God, Paul says that God's intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Through us, through everyone on earth who is part of the church, part of the people of God. Through that people, God wants to show the world what he is like. So Satan gets all the guns and points them at the church. Because he knows that that's the way people see God. And if he sees a divided church, a bickering church, a loveless church, that reflects badly on God. He knows in in chapter 4, verse 3, because he's read Ephesians and he's heard it read, he knows that God calls his people to keep the unity of the Spirit. So he tries to divide. He knows, because he's read Ephesians 1, verse 5, he knows that we are adopted. As Linda talked about a few weeks ago, we are children of God, sons and daughters of God, not slaves. We are adopted. 
And Satan undermines that with all his might. And so many people in the church do not view themselves as a son or a daughter of God. They read the parable parable of the prodigal son. And they identify with the wrong brother. The younger brother goes away, wastes everything, comes back and finds the father running down the road to meet him and embrace him. That's who we're meant to relate to. Back home, there's an elder brother who's a religious freak who just thinks you have to work and work and work and work and work to keep the father happy. And the problem is too many of us allow ourselves to behave like that in this religious country. (laughs) Elder brother syndrome in the church. Satan wants to undermine the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. Well, Maybe the person beside me is a daughter of God, but it couldn't be me. Maybe the person beside me is a son, but not me. This is war. This is spiritual warfare. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is a stirring call to battle. What is it within us that loves stories of good conquering evil? You know, I haven't seen it yet. But the recent Avengers movie has just knocked all box office records out of the park. And what is it? Ultimately, it is, I assume, a story of good kicking evil's butt. What is Star Wars about? What is Lord of the Rings about? What is Narnia about? What are all these great stories about that, that resonate with us and that we love to watch? It's that stirring victory of good over evil because there's something in us that knows we are part of a battle and we crave that victory. The enemy we face then is not flesh and blood. And I want you to get this. I've said this several times and I want you to really get it. Human beings are not your enemy. Human beings are made in the image of God and Jesus died for them and loves them. They are not your enemy. You have one enemy, and that is Satan. He's your enemy. He will manifest and he will use people against you, but they're not the enemy. (laughs) He is. He is. And we need to know our enemy if we are to fight effectively. If we underestimate his power and his strength, then we will not think that we need the armor of God. And we will not put it on and we will get whipped when we go to battle. Our struggle is not with human beings but with the demonic realm. Ephesus was a center and a hotbed of demonic activity. Go to Acts chapter 19. Keep your finger in in Ephesus 6. Acts 19. And verse 28. Tells you a little bit about life in Ephesus. When they heard this, they were furious. This is the crowd of the people that lived in Ephesus. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis, also known as Diana, was a goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And whenever Paul showed up in Ephesians, riots broke out because her control was going to be broken. Because Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians that whenever an idol is worshipped, the idol itself is nothing, but he basically says behind the idol there's demons lapping up the worship. So idolatry is not nothing. 
Worshipping a stone god or worshipping materialism or worshipping whatever it is that we worship, it's not as if our worship of those things just falls to the ground. It doesn't behind their demons and they're just picking it up, loving it. Any worship that is not directed to God is picked up by demons. And Paul's readers are familiar with a a story as well in, in the past in Ephesus. You understand, this is written to the Ephesian church who knew about these stories from Acts 19. Here's a funny story happens in, in Acts 19, verse 13. We'll give you a warning not to be flippant about the enemy. Not to be careless. Not to be mocking. Right? If there's a wasp's nest in your house, you will not go to it and start poking it and saying, nah, 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 nah. But some of us, that's the way we, we talk sometimes about the enemy. And we know we need to get it out. We know it can do us a lot of damage, but boy, we don't play with it. We don't play with it. And in this story in Acts 19, some Jews in verse 13 went around driving out evil spirits, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. Love this. It's terrible saying you love something that a demon says, but I love this. He says, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? The demons know who's the real thing. They know who is a threat to them, and they know who is not. And basically just say to this guy, I know who Jesus is, I know Paul's the real deal, but I never heard of you. You have no authority over me. Jesus has authority over me. Paul has authority over me, but not you, buddy. (laughs) And you've picked a fight that you can't win today. And what that demon does, it says in verse 16, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. He kicked their naked butts and away they went down the road. Seven of them. One demon. Because they toyed with him. And they thought they had authority that they did not have. I always think it's funny that dogs just seem to know people. (laughs) Dogs know whether somebody likes them or not. (laughs) Really quickly. Um, I I sometimes ask people at the door, do you talk dog? Do you talk dog? Are you able to communicate with the dog? Get into the house, get on the floor quickly and play with the dog so that we can get this over with. Because the dog will know if you're really awkward and shifty around dogs. And the dog then will get really awkward and shifty. You dog owners, do you know what I mean? Your dog just seems to get shifty around people because those people are shifty around the dog. And the dog knows. And demons are like that as well. They know who you are. They know whether you are actually scared of them or not. They know whether you're a person who, have, who has authority, who can speak the language. They know if you have a deep walk with God. And they're scared witless if you do. But if you're just spoofing, you better be ready to get your naked butt kicked. Because you will not be able to deal with it if your walk with God is not deep carved out in the secret place of prayer and devotion and worship and the word of God. That's where the authority comes. The demons also know of a night in Ephesus when there was a bonfire. 
Just after that same portion, whenever a bunch of people were heard about this, they were seized with fear. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many who believed now came, openly confessed their evil deeds. And a number who had practiced witchcraft brought their books together and burned them publicly. Do you need to have a bonfire? Are there things that you've toyed with in the past and they need to go on the bonfire. These principalities and powers that that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, they are, listen to the language that he uses as he describes them, they are powerful. I'm not giving them glory and I'm not giving them honor or too much respect, but they are powerful. Listen to the phrases he uses. He talks about, Uh, rulers and authorities and powers in this dark world. The enemy is a powerful enemy. Do not underestimate it. They are also wicked. Talks about the rulers, the powers of this dark world. Darkness is their natural habitat. Darkness is where they want to be. And they are also cunning In verse 13, no, sorry, it's verse 11. At the end of verse 11, Paul talks about the devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. You see, the devil is unlikely to appear at your door with a limousine full of attractive people of the opposite gender and a whole pile of alcohol. He's not likely to do that. He sneaks in from the side. He seduces you with little ideas, little temptations, little thoughts that seem authentic and seem real. Little messages come to you. Wouldn't actually it would be okay to do that? Wouldn't it be okay to do that? It would be all right to do that. It would be all right to go there. It would be all right to try this. Schemes. The wiles of the enemy. He's cunning. That's why he's likened to a serpent. In fact, in in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He presents himself respectable. Very, very, um, what's the word? Very convincing. Very seductive in his ways. They're cunning, these principalities and powers. And when you serve God and when you put yourself in a position of serving God and you go to the front line of the battle, you will encounter them. The devil is a wolf. He sometimes roars like a lion and he is always subtle like a serpent. And his greatest trick is to fool people into thinking that he doesn't exist. And it's all fairy tale hokum and it's not real. And believe me, it's real. Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord. And it really would be better translated, be strengthened. I am not a strong person. I am a strengthened person. There's a difference. I am a weak person who is strengthened in God's strength. I am not strong. I don't want to be strong in my own strength. I want to be strengthened constantly by him. And we've read already, if you just look at the words that he uses in in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then go back to chapter 1, 
verse 19, where, where we read about the power that is like the working of his mighty strength. Power, might, strength in Ephesians 1.19 and also in Ephesians 6.10. Back in Ephesians 1.19, that was the power and the might and the strength that raised Jesus from the dead. That also works in us and that also gives us the strength to stand against the enemy. We need to be strengthened. Otherwise, we'll not make it. We need to be strengthened. Luke 11. I'm sorry for bouncing about here, but I'm nearly done. Luke 11. Great little passage about strength. Does anybody want to quit? Is the opposition too much? Should we abandon people? Eh? Keep her lit. Luke chapter 11, Jesus is telling a story and he says in verse 21, he's talking about the devil. He says, when a strong man, that's the devil, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. So the devil has taken people captive. And he is strong. And he guards what he has taken captive. Verse 22. Love it. But when someone stronger. Say stronger. I'm not going to make a habit of this. I just feel like doing it today. (laughs) When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him. He takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. The devil is a strong man. He has taken plunder. He guards it viciously. But a stronger man has come. And he has attacked the devil. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. And when we read in Ephesians, we see Jesus seated in the heavenlies and we see all of those principalities and powers, all of those demonic forces. Where are they in the picture? They are under his feet. And we think, well, that's good for Jesus that they're under his feet. What about us? Well, just think about it. If we are seated with him, they are under our feet as well. Oh, folks, don't underestimate and don't, don't position yourself lower than God has positioned you. You're seated with Christ. Everything that is evil and wicked and of darkness is under your feet. Under your feet. We are stronger because Jesus is stronger. Back in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, the first word of the verse says, Finally. And what the word literally means is, From now until the end. That's what it means. It's not just him wrapping up his letter. He is saying from now until the end. In other words, this is the way it will always be. Do you think at some stage in your life the devil's going to give you peace? He's not. (laughs) After he tempted Jesus in the wilderness and repeatedly said to him, If you're the son of God, if you really are who you think you are and who God says you are, do this and do that and do the other thing. And then he leaves him and waits for an opportune time. And he comes back in many guises, especially at the cross, 
comes back and that voice is heard again, if you're the son of God, he will not leave you alone. He will not leave you alone. He will attack and he will attack and he will attack. And we need to know how to stand strong in the Lord. We're not going to get to the armor of God today, but when we do, we will learn a bit more about that. He also talks about wrestling in the older versions of the Bible. He says our struggle or our wrestling. Wrestling is not sitting in a room pushing buttons and launching missiles. Wrestling is close combat. Hand to hand, face to face, ugly. It's close. And one other thing that I want you to know is that when the, whenever Paul writes this, again, this is important, get this. Like all of his letters, he's writing plural. So when he says you, he's not referring to one person. He's referring to the whole church. He says the whole church has got to put on the armor of God. The whole church has got to stand strong. It's not just about your battle against the enemy. Get this. The battles that you are fighting, we are meant to fight them with you together. You're not meant to try and stand on your own. It's plural. It's written to a community of people. Do you understand? Because the community is at stake in your battles as well. What happens to the community if I fall in my battles? What happens to the community if one of you falls? It's not as if it's just one person. No, you're inextricably linked to the body of Christ. And therefore, your battles affect all of us. And therefore, we all fight together. And we put the armor on together. We don't try to stand alone. I want to give you two slightly surprising tactics of warfare. And then I'm done and we'll pick up again in the next episode. The first one. Now, these both will sound slightly strange because if you've read any books on spiritual warfare or heard anything on it, there are some, you know, there are some sort of far-out views out there. Um, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but these are very simple. <laughs> very simple. Do you want to do damage to the enemy? Yeah? Do you want to do damage, major damage to the enemy? First thing, forgive people. Now, just let that hang for a minute. Forgive people. One of the great things about going through a letter is, is, as we've done already today, you bounce back and you pick up wee things. Ephesians 4 probably hit me more than any other chapter in the Bible over the last six or eight months. Uh, particularly the last sort of half a dozen or six or eight verses in Ephesians 4. It says in verse 25, well, let's go for verse 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now listen to me. Do not give the devil a foothold. The Greek word is topos, from which we would get topography, a region, a place, usually a place that is under governance, ruled by someone. And the teaching that Paul is giving at the end of Ephesians 4 is, if we choose 
to live in a way that is contrary to what he's teaching, we are giving the devil a foothold in our hearts. Have you ever heard the word jurisdiction? I remember watching sort of cop movies as I was a kid and you'd hear this word jurisdiction. So cops chasing a guy and then the guy leaves the state, crosses the state line into a different state and the cop stops and goes back home and says, well, he's out of my jurisdiction. What that means is I have no legal authority there. Whenever we hold unforgiveness in our hearts, listen to me. When we hold unforgiveness in our hearts, we are giving part of our heart to the devil and we are saying, you can have jurisdiction here. You can have legal authority in my heart. Here's a foothold. In fact, here's a seat for you. Whereas when we choose to forgive daily, repeatedly, over and over again, forgive, forgive, forgive. Picture in your mind the devil climbing a cliff face in your heart and he goes to reach for a grip or a foothold, but you haven't given him a foothold because you have forgiven people. He doesn't find a foothold and his ugly self drops off the cliff and hits the floor. You want to do spiritual warfare? Before you start binding demons, try forgiving people. Because you'll wreck him when you do that. You will wreck him. But in your heart you say, Ah, oh, but, but, but what about what that person did to me? Forgive. But that person, there needs to be justice. It was wrong and there needs to be justice. There will be. God will deal with it. You forgive. Don't think that I find this easy. I don't. But I'm learning. I'm still learning. But you understand when we, when we don't forgive... We, we say, Satan, you have legal authority in my heart. Come and have a seat. And when we do forgive, then we do launch a missile at his ugly head. That's warfare. That's warfare, church. Can the devil influence Christian people? Absolutely. Otherwise, Paul would not have written to a Christian community and said, don't give the devil a foothold. He wrote to them because the devil can influence Christian people. Whenever Jesus turned to Peter in Matthew 16, when Peter had dropped the ball and said something silly, Jesus turned and says, get behind me, Satan. Was Peter satanic? No. Was he Satan possessed? No. Was he demon possessed? No. Was he being influenced by the devil? Yes. Yes, he was. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Members of the church in Acts chapter 5 who said that they'd given a certain amount to the church but had kept some back. And Peter turns and says to them, how did Satan get into your heart? How did he lie to you? And how are you lying to the Holy Spirit? What's going on? Were they influenced by Satan? Yes, they were. What about Demas? Demas who in Philemon, at the end of the letter to Philemon, Demas is part of the team. But at the end of 2 Timothy, Demas has deserted me. By 2 Timothy is a sad letter, some parts of it. Demas has deserted me. Can Satan influence people? Yes, he can. Forgiveness, I believe. And all of these things that are in Ephesians 4, don't slander people. When you, when you have an opportunity to slander someone and you don't take it, you have just flipping launched one at the enemy right there. Like, you really have. You really have. As much as you will have binding any demon. When you choose, you have an opportunity in conversation. Right now, I could slander and I could destroy that person, but I'm not going to. Bang! Satan, take that. You know? It's like the old Batman where you see the pow coming up on the screen whenever he gets slapped. 
Oh, come on, folks. This is a lot simpler than we make it out. We sometimes, oh, spiritual warfare is for the experts. There are experts in deliverance and spiritual warfare. No, this is about God's people living in a way that honors God and doesn't allow the enemy to get a foothold in their lives or in their churches or in their families. And the second one, and here I'm done. Aaron, you could come on up ahead and, 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 and take up the harp, brother, and I'll finish off while you do that. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 20, and with this I finish. Second Chronicles, Old Testament, go to Psalms and head left, and you'll find Second Chronicles soon enough. Second Chronicles 20, the scene is a battle. It is warfare. And the king is Jehoshaphat, and his military tactics are slightly odd. As he arranges his soldiers, the ones that he puts at the very front are not guys who are good with a bow and arrow, or a spear, or an AK-47, or whatever. The ones that he puts at the front are the singers. He gets his choir, he puts them on the front line, and that's how he fights. Because singing is spiritual warfare. Whenever we praise God, our praise is taking place in three <coughs> levels. We're praising Him. There's a vertical aspect. We're praising God. We're exalting Him. There's an aspect horizontally where we are encouraging and exhorting one another and teaching each other through the songs that we sing. And then there's an, a downwards aspect where we are trampling on the head of a defeated foe. Our worship is warfare. And I can never understand it when people say, don't be so exuberant in your worship. That's like going to the front line of, of uh, World War I and saying to a guy, mm, that gun's a bit powerful. Here, here's a water pistol. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be using something as aggressive as that. Tone it all down. No, worship is warfare. Look at what happened in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. Not, not to sing taunts to the enemy. It wasn't like a football match. It wasn't like they were, they were singing. They were just praising God. As they praise God, the enemy takes it, gets a kick. It's not that we start singing to the devil. We praise God and in the meantime, bang, 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 somebody's getting a hammer in. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever as they began to sing praise, which we're about to do. The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Yeah, before you get busy binding, Sing your lungs out. Praise God. Lift him up and make much of him. And the devil's just collateral damage. Yeah, let's do that.